This is an ABC Radio National podcast. For full details, abc.net.au slash rn. Geraldine Dude, welcome to the Boyer Lectures for 2006. This year's presenter is departing Reserve Bank Governor Ian McFarlane, and his lectures are titled The Search for Stability, the evolution of the world's leading economies since World War II, including Australia's. Last week, he examined the recession of 1990 and how that downturn would come to be seen as unavoidable. But did those dark days lay the foundations for the 15 years of prosperity that was to follow? Was there a silver lining in that cloud? In this fifth lecture, titled The Long Expansion, we'll hear how sustained economic growth re-emerged and how policymakers built on a once-in-a-generation opportunity to return Australia to being a low-inflation economy. Here's Ian McFarlane. In late 1991... The economy emerged from recession, but this did little to lift people's spirits. A brooding pessimism seemed to affect all shades of economic and political opinion, and people were gloomy about our economic future. Naturally, everyone was concerned by our high level of unemployment, which could only be reduced if we had a robust and long-lasting economic recovery. But few, if any, expected this to happen. Most mainstream economists were still troubled by Australia's inability to deal with its large current account deficit and high level of foreign debt, which they believed would prevent the economy from achieving a sustainable growth path. On the left, the anti-economic rationalists despaired even more and felt that economic policy had to renounce its market-based approach and return to the interventionist approach of earlier decades. From the right, on the other hand, there was a call for more free market reform and for major institutional changes, especially to monetary policy. Without this, they believed Australia was doomed to return to high inflation and a boom-and-bust economic cycle. In the event, as we now know from our vantage point in 2006, the Australian economy achieved an economic expansion that is now in its 15th year. This makes it longer than any other expansion in Australia since reasonable records have been kept. It is now longer than the previous longest expansion from 1961 to 1974, though not as fast. But more importantly, the underlying rate of inflation after 15 years is no higher than at the beginning, unlike the earlier expansion where it reached double digits by the end. This suggests that we will not have to face the high costs of reducing inflation as we did at the end of previous expansions. Why was it possible to have such a long expansion on this occasion when we had failed to achieve it after earlier recessions? There are several answers to this question, but to me, two stand out as the most important. First, as I explained in Lecture 4, the recession resulted in the economy returning to genuinely low inflation. This was a good start. Second, we put in place a monetary policy framework that was able to keep inflation low even after a number of years of good growth. There were other factors as well, but I will leave discussion of them until after I have explained monetary policy. 
Some listeners may think that I'm giving too much prominence to monetary policy because it is the subject I know most about. Perhaps that's so, but there is a very good reason why we should start with monetary policy, and that's because we are concerned here with stability. Most of the other reforms, important though they were, were concerned with increasing competition and productivity, and hence economic growth and national wealth over the long run. They were not aimed at stability, but at growth. Monetary policy, on the other hand, cannot increase a country's long-run economic growth. That is determined by the growth of its labour force and its productivity. Monetary policy can, however, provide stability and sustainability by avoiding excesses in both upward and downward directions, and the most effective way of doing this is to make sure that inflation does not get out of control as it did in the 1970s and, to a lesser extent, the 1980s. We have already seen that after monetary targeting was ended in 1985, monetary policy did not have a clear framework. Although we had the capacity to conduct effective monetary policy, we had not laid out what its guiding principle should be. It was perceived to be directed at a number of objectives, with different participants in the process having different priorities. There was also a great uncertainty as to which body, the government or the Reserve Bank, was making the monetary policy decisions. Ultimately, these issues were resolved, but it was a slow process that didn't have a definitive turning point in the form of a new piece of legislation. On the subject of the ultimate objective of monetary policy, both economic theory and the experience of the past 60 years were clear that it should be the rate of inflation. There had never been a period with a high rate of inflation that had not been supported by accommodating monetary policy. Similarly, there had never been a major fall in inflation without it being accompanied by a tightening of monetary policy. But even so, it was not an easy proposition for many people to accept, for several reasons. First, it sounded as though monetary policy was unconcerned with unemployment. This is because in the short run, as the Phillips curve demonstrated, lower inflation is associated with higher unemployment and higher inflation with lower unemployment. But this is only a short-run effect, and as we have seen, attempts to exploit it in the long run prove to be counterproductive. In the long run, the relationship is the other way around. Our post-war history shows that all the periods of sustainable growth and low unemployment were low inflation periods. The periods of high unemployment were the high inflation periods. The previous four lectures have recounted this experience in detail and the reasons for it. It therefore follows that the best contribution monetary policy can make to lowering unemployment is to achieve a sustainable economic expansion, and this can only be achieved if it is a low inflation expansion. There was also a fear among some people that draconian interest rate action would be required to maintain low inflation. They remembered the high interest rates of the 1980s, but that had brought only a limited reduction in inflation. How much higher would interest rates have to go to achieve and maintain genuinely low inflation? We have now seen the result. Once low inflation is achieved and inflation expectations stabilise at a low rate, then interest rates can also be maintained at a relatively low average rate. It is true that interest rates have to be raised to reduce inflation, but again, this is a short-run issue. In the long run, low inflation means low interest rates. The public knows that now, but it was not obvious nearly 20 years ago. A number of countries highlighted the centrality of inflation as the monetary policy objective by introducing formal inflation targeting processes. New Zealand was the first in 1989, 
followed quickly by Canada, the UK and Sweden in the early 1990s. In each case, the new system was introduced by the government or by a joint government-central bank partnership. The situation was more difficult in Australia because the issue was immediately politicised, with the opposition advocating a New Zealand-type model and the government defending its existing practice. In the event, the Reserve Bank itself gradually introduced the idea of inflation targeting. In a speech in 1993, Governor Bernie Fraser merely observed that maintaining an average inflation rate of 2-3% would be a good thing. Over time, in a number of speeches and research papers, this was firmed up sufficiently to be seen as the Reserve Bank's inflation target. The Keating government did not oppose this development, but neither did it formally endorse it. Treasurer Ralph Willis made several favourable references to it in speeches, and the ACTU incorporated it into the final year of the Accord, but there were still many, especially overseas, who wondered whether the government was really committed to it. Finally, in August 1996, in the Statement on the Conduct of Monetary Policy, Treasurer Peter Costello formally committed the government to supporting the inflation target, so there could be no doubt that it was the policy of both the Reserve Bank and the government. The other big issue to be resolved, which to some extent ran in parallel with the inflation targeting issue, was the question of which body was to be responsible for monetary policy decisions. This was a long process, with subtle changes occurring steadily despite political controversy. Again, the final resolution was reached only in 1996 with the signing of the Statement on the Conduct of Monetary Policy. Like inflation targeting, the concept of an independent central bank is not an obvious one. Most people on both sides of politics took the view that the elected government should be responsible for monetary policy, just as it was responsible for fiscal policy, trade policy, foreign policy and so on. Why should monetary policy be any different? In post-war Australia, this was a conventional view and it was not challenged until the end of the 1980s. As recently as the Fraser government, there was no doubt that on the big monetary policy issues, the Monetary Policy Committee of Cabinet took the decisions on the joint advice of the Reserve Bank and Treasury. In a number of countries, things began to change in the mid-1980s. First, a number of research papers appeared showing that countries with independent central banks tended to have lower inflation than those where the government took the decisions, and that this lower inflation was not achieved at the expense of lower economic growth. This was as near to a free lunch as you could get in economics, and deserved serious consideration. But I doubt that this evidence on its own would have been sufficient to change practices in those countries with little central bank independence. At the same time, however, there was also a lot of discussion going on among political scientists and economists about the best place for decisions to be made. We have already seen that deregulation was part of this, in that governments were choosing to step aside from various decisions to leave them to the market. Similarly, it was recognised that it was not necessarily best for those decisions that were still to be retained within the government sphere to be taken at ministerial or cabinet level. The legal system is the best example. The government and legislature make the laws, but the courts, free of government control, make the decisions within the law. A good example in the economic sphere is the Commonwealth Grants Commission, which is an independent body that decides how tax revenue is to be distributed to the states. A more far-reaching example is the Arbitration Commission. 
For many decades, this independent body set wages for most Australians and so effectively set the aggregate wage level for the economy. It was so independent that at national wage cases, the government had to use the services of a QC to argue its case to the Commission, which sometimes ignored or overruled these arguments. So in terms of democratic theory and practice, an independent central bank was not such a radical innovation. Monetary policy decisions have always been troubling ones for governments. In a growing economy with low and relatively stable inflation, interest rates should rise and fall depending on demand and inflation pressures. The system should be reasonably symmetrical. Over time, interest rates should rise about as often as they fall. The problem is that the public reaction to changes in interest rates is far from symmetrical. Virtually no one objects to reductions, but increases are often intensely unpopular and can provoke an electoral backlash. Even for an independent body, it is more difficult to raise rates than lower them, and for governments the disparity is even greater. As a result, most governments, faced with the prospect of raising rates, wait for very strong evidence of the need to become apparent, and often this means waiting until inflation has already become a problem. Thus, increases in interest rates were often too small and too late. Monetary policy became asymmetrical. Politicians eventually came to realise that it was better for an independent body, the central bank, to take the unpopular decisions and receive the public criticism and hate mail rather than them. In Australia, this was a gradual process. By the late 1980s, the Reserve Bank had a fair amount of independence and that we did not receive monetary policy orders from Canberra. All the decisions to change interest rates were initiated by the Reserve Bank and after discussion and agreement with the government were carried out, usually without modification. Thus in 1992 I was able to say in public, if you don't like how monetary policy has turned out, blame Martin Place. I said this largely because I wanted to correct the perception at the time that the Reserve Bank had little independence. Looking back, I have no reason to regret having said it, but I should point out that I didn't wish to give the impression that we had complete independence. What we had was a conditional independence. We took the initiative, but still had to get final approval from Canberra before we took action. Then we would put out a press release announcing the change, and the Treasurer would simultaneously release one supporting the change. In this system, the government never criticised monetary policy because it would be criticising its own policy. With the signing of the Statement on the Conduct of Monetary Policy in 1996, the Reserve Bank gained full independence. When the board of the bank decided on a change, it put the change into place even if the government disapproved of it. There was no longer an accompanying press release from the Treasurer, and the government felt free to criticise the change if it wished to. It could do so because it was criticising the Reserve Bank's monetary policy, not its own. Not surprisingly, government criticism has occurred only in the case of interest rate increases, not decreases. Generally, it has not been from the Treasurer, but from the Prime Minister or other Ministers. It has never been clear to me whether the criticism has been strongly felt or whether it has merely been an exercise in publicly distancing the government from the rise. The current policy framework of inflation targeting and central bank independence has met with considerable success during its period of operation and now enjoys public approval and bipartisan political support. Since the inception of the inflation target in 1993, the CPI has increased at an average rate of 2.6% per annum, and this has helped to underpin the long economic expansion. Over the same period, 
economic growth has averaged three and three quarter percent per annum. Monetary policies had to be tightened in several phases, such as in 1994, 1999 and the most recent four years. But in between, there are easings. The cash rate has averaged 5.7% over the period, which is much lower than in the 1970s and 1980s. So much for monetary policy. But what about the other factors that have contributed to the long expansion? In particular, the raft of economic reforms aimed at making the economy more competitive and productive. These no doubt played an important role, although their primary purpose was to increase productivity and hence national wealth. The reforms were successful and that in the 1990s productivity grew at rates that had not been seen since the 1960s. An interesting sidelight to this development was that it went largely unnoticed in international circles for quite a long time. In late 2000, the US Federal Reserve Bulletin contained a paper that set out to explain the recent pickup in US productivity and contrast it with the lacklustre performance in 16 other OECD countries. It was a very thorough article, but it kept finding an irritating exception to its general thesis. Whether it was measuring the growth of labour productivity or multi-factor productivity, Australia either matched or exceeded the excellent US performance. For present purposes, the more interesting issue is whether these reforms made it easier to maintain low inflation and hence allow the expansion to continue for longer. Although that was not their main purpose, I think they did so. In earlier decades, there was a type of cost-plus mentality in Australian businesses. If some cost went up, for example wages or an imported component, there was a tendency to simply pass it through to output prices, secure in the knowledge that your competitors would probably do the same thing. But as a result of the increased competition from abroad and in domestic goods markets, this tendency was reduced, and instead management often looked to cost savings in other areas to offset the initial increase. In addition, with labour market deregulation, when costs of a particular type of labour rose, it did not get spread broadly through the labour force as in earlier times. The economy thus became more able to withstand inflationary shocks, such as a fall in the exchange rate or a rise in raw material prices, without them being passed through in their entirety to inflation. I now turn to fiscal policy. In Australia, the recent history of fiscal policy is clearly related to the business cycle. The Whitlam government left office with a large budget deficit, the result of the mid-1970s recession and a high rate of discretionary spending. In the second half of the 1970s, Treasurer Howard inherited this large budget deficit, which he brought back to a small surplus in 1982, before it blew out again following the 1982 recession. Treasurer Keating inherited this deficit and brought it back to surplus for four years in the late 1980s. It then moved into substantial deficit as a result of the 1990s recession and its immediate aftermath. Treasurer Costello inherited this large deficit in 1996 and was able to bring it back into surplus by 1998. Apart from one small deficit in one year, we have now had a series of eight surpluses in the past decade. There is no doubt that Australia can claim to have a good record on fiscal policy virtually the best in the OECD area. We have had some large budget deficits, but each time they have been largely the product of recessions. Unlike a lot of other OECD countries, however, we have shown the ability to bring the budget back into surplus during the years of good economic growth. These surpluses, combined with the revenue obtained from privatisations, have virtually eliminated government debt. 
This reputation for fiscal rectitude has served Australia well and has no doubt been reflected at the margin in our exchange rate, our bond yields and the general willingness of international investors to do business in Australia. It is not clear, however, whether it has held down our inflation rate. Many other countries, particularly in Europe, have maintained low inflation despite continuing budget deficits of the order of 3% of GDP. Instead, our remarkable record on fiscal policy is more a reflection of our long expansion than the cause of it. Even so, it still involves discipline and the surplus could easily have been spent, as the UK is now demonstrating. Another possible explanation for the length of the expansion over the past 15 years is that it has been a relatively stable period for the world economy. There is some truth in this view, as it has certainly been a period with a lot less economic turbulence than in the 1970s and probably less than in the 1980s. But it has not been without its external shocks. The most obvious one was the Asian crisis, which lasted from mid-1997 to about the end of 1998, by which time it had also pulled in Latin America, Russia and several international banks and hedge funds. The fact that Australia was able to withstand the Asian crisis, even though our export dependency on Asia was greater than any other OECD country, attracted a lot of favourable international attention. At the time, our exports fell sharply, leading to a fall in the Australian dollar, which was made larger by the type of speculative capital movements that had wreaked havoc in Asia. Fortunately, the economy was growing strongly as we entered the crisis, and despite the sharp fall in the dollar, the Reserve Bank did not raise the cash rate. As a result, the Australian economy hardly slowed at all, and the dollar recovered once the crisis was over. There are two lessons I take from the Asian crisis. First, it shows the benefits of economic reform. We only have to contemplate what would have happened if we had still been operating a fixed exchange rate when confronted with the Asian crisis. Monetary policy would have to have been tightened substantially to preserve the parity of the Australian dollar, which in all probability would have precipitated a recession. The second lesson is that decisions on monetary policy were still important, even with the help of a floating exchange rate. The Reserve Bank has often been praised for lowering interest rates during the period, while other countries raised them. In fact, we did not lower interest rates, but we did distinguish ourselves by not raising them. We were the only significant OECD country not to do so at any time in 1997 or 1998. We certainly thought about it, but in the end we judged that it would probably be unhelpful and possibly seriously destabilising, as it turned out to be in the case of New Zealand where rates were raised. The other important international event that Australia was able to withstand was the recession that occurred in most G7 countries in 2001. This was the first international recession in recent decades that Australia has managed to avoid and is the reason that our current economic expansion has a good chance of being twice as long as previous cyclical expansions. The fact that the international recession was a mild one helped us, but there was a more important reason why we did not participate. We had not built up the imbalances that preceded and led to the recession as other countries had. The main imbalances in the United States and Europe were an asset price boom in share markets, particularly in technology-related industries, and excessive physical investment in those industries. When the bubble burst, there was a collapse of share prices and falls in physical investment as overcapacity was revealed. We didn't have the boom, at least not to the same extent, 
so we did not have the bust, with its destruction of apparent wealth and associated disillusionment with business practices and ethics. We had had it all before at the end of the 1980s, but not this time. There were also some domestic events that put strains on our monetary policy framework. In 1994, while the new system was in its infancy, and where there were doubts as to whether low inflation expectations had bedded down, there was an acceleration in wages that threatened the inflation target. But three rises in interest rates in the second half of 1994 brought wages and prices back into line, with only a relatively modest slowing in the economy. I regard this as a textbook example of good preemptive monetary policy, but I note from a recent book that politicians from both sides regard it as a politically costly mistake. Its long-run benefits are not in doubt, but political judgment focuses on the short-run costs. Another challenge was posed by the introduction of the GST in 2000, which was thought by many to pose a serious risk to the inflation outlook. In the event, it did add three percentage points to the change in the CPI in the September quarter of that year, but in textbook fashion, this dropped out next year and inflation returned to its earlier rate. Again, one could not imagine such a successful result if it had been attempted in the 1970s or 1980s. And then there was the housing boom. In the early years of this decade, Australia experienced a quite rapid rise in house prices, which by 2003 were showing many of the characteristics of a bubble. I have written about this on several occasions, and so won't dwell on it here. It is sufficient to say that a strong public awareness campaign led by the Reserve Bank highlighting the dangers seems to have brought stability back to that market. Credibility was added to these warnings by the fact that, for general macroeconomic purposes, monetary policy was being tightened gradually from 2002 through to 2006. Finally, it would not be complete to finish on this subject without saying something about longer-run trends in Asia and in particular China. It is clear now that the massive expansion of internationally traded manufactured goods from China has put downward pressure on world inflation. At a household level, this is now epitomised by, for example, the $18 electric drill or the $60 DVD player. But is that piece of good luck enough in itself to explain why countries such as Australia have been able to achieve low inflation and does it mean that we will easily be able to maintain it? I think not for several reasons. First, China has only been a big influence on the world price level for less than a decade yet Australia regained low inflation 15 years ago and the United States nearly 25 years ago. The domestic policy initiatives I have explained in the earlier lectures are a much more plausible explanation of the return to low inflation by OECD countries, although China has made the task of staying there easier. Second, as we can see by the recent sharp rises in world commodity prices, the strength of the Chinese economy is a two-edged sword for the world price level. That's because it simultaneously lowers manufactured goods prices but raises commodity prices. In conclusion, we have to accept that luck no doubt plays a role in economic development, just as in other areas of human activity, but a lot more than luck has been involved in the long expansion. Let me leave you with a quote from a recent article by Paul Kelly. He summarised the Australian experience as follows. Quote, This model... Not good luck is the reason Australia has enjoyed a 15-year expansion. It is defined by a floating exchange rate, 
a credible medium-term inflation target operated by an independent central bank, a shift towards a more decentralised wage-fixing system, and a permanent budget surplus of about 1% of GDP. End of quote. Ian McFarlane on a positive note in the fifth of this year's Boyer Lectures. But next week, he sounds a small warning. Has the evolution of monetary policy come to an end? Can we be so optimistic to imagine that all potential hazards have been overcome, that the economy has somehow been future-proofed? Challenges for the future. That's the sixth and final lecture in this year's series, which I do hope you've enjoyed. The Boyer Lectures are produced by Scott Wales, with technical production by Jennifer Parsonage. ABC Radio National. More than 60 programs, more than 260 transmitters Australia-wide. And we're live on the net as well as media-on-demand streams. Find out how to get more out of Radio National. Go to abc.net.au slash rn. And for the full list of MP3 and podcast programs, abc.net.au slash rn slash podcast.